welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. To you today, we're going to start talking about technology, and then um, early next week we're going to talk about trade, so we're really talking about things and their movement, and that will um, blend us right into talking about one of the greatest empires of the ancient world, which was ancient Rome, uh, next week. So uh, today we're going to talk about four types of or four realms of technology, and there were others, but this is one way to organize them. Uh, this will probably take us today and Friday. So we're going to talk about stone tools, organic products, pottery, and metal. I changed the order of that, but apparently it didn't. Uh, hopefully you didn't get it quick enough. Uh, does anyone have an idea of a definition for what a tool is? There's a fancy definition that I have, but are there other definitions you might? Well, if I said, uh, what is a tool, what would you tell me? Sure, some, something that makes tasks easier to do. Uh, another one of my favorite answers is uh, a tool is something that lets you make other things, right? Um, sure. Uh, the really strict definition, which is kind of ridiculous, is an instrument of manual operation. Manual comes from manus, right, uh, hand in Latin. So it's like manual means by hand, uh, manual, uh, manual operation. An instrument of manual operation, although you can certainly say something like it, it is something that allows you to uh, do something else, uh, perhaps more easily. Sometimes tools make things more difficult, depending on the um, the tool itself. So do tool, does tool use separate us from animals? I see a couple heads shaking. Do you have examples of animals using tools? Anybody? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ant fishing chimpanzees, certainly. Yeah? Eric? Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, nutcracker uh, stones, actually, yeah. So here's I have a picture of that, chimpanzees, yeah. Anyone else? Others? Um, we've seen uh, crows are likely one of the smartest birds around. They use tools. Um, and even if you want to think about it this way, a uh, otter uses uh, you know rocks. They put them on their belly, and they crack the, uh, the shellfish open. Uh, the chimpanzees are by far the most prolific tool users. Uh, they use the widest variety of tools from any non-human animal. Uh, there's, yeah, there's certainly the um, fishing for termites and ants using sticks. Um, they strip the stick, they'll carry it over, and then they'll use it. They use stones for busting open nuts. They use spongy type of vegetative material to get water out of hard to reach places and drink it. So they have a, a wide variety of tool use. And the interesting thing is their tool use is learned, right? It's one thing if it's instinctual. Like, I don't know about otters. Otters might instinctually use rocks to crack open um, shellfish. I don't know. 
but I do know that there are different bands of chimpanzees that have different tool use strategies and abilities because it's a culturally learned uh, skill. So uh, the learning of using tools is unusual. Um, when we talk about tool use, we're going to be talking about ethnographic information. Ethnographic information comes from uh, usually living people or uh, recently living people and their use of tools. We'll be talking about pottery, and here we have somebody doing traditional pottery. Um, we have to be very careful when we use um, when we use this information because we have to realize that the people we're seeing today making pottery have, are living at a different time and in a different cultural context than the people uh, perhaps in the, here in this example in the American Southwest a thousand years ago. We've had a big change in the last 500 years with the advent or the uh, arrival of Europeans and the culture clash that, re that came afterwards. So a potter today, even though she's making pots that look very similar maybe to pots from a thousand years ago, we have to be cognizant of the fact that a lot's gone on since then. You can't just directly correlate um, your notes from today to the past. We can divide tools, um, or we can describe tools into overarching categories. There's reductive tools, and there's compound tools. Reductive tools are ones where you start with a large amount of material, and you, like, uh, is it Raphael or Michelangelo? Who was the uh, sculptor who said, uh, I just cut out the marble that doesn't belong on the sculpture? Right, that's reductive, it's a reductive technology. You start with a large block of something, or a large, uh, initial piece and you cut off, break off, or get rid of what you don't want and what you're left with then is your um, your final product, your tool, right, like sculpture. Um, so reductive tools remove unwanted material to create a final product. Compound tools, on the other hand, join materials together into a final product. So this is a lot of what we use. Most of our tools today are composite tools. If it's got two different types of materials and they're stuck together somehow, you're probably dealing with a composite tool. I'm trying to think if I have anything on me in my pocket that is not a compound tool. Oh, keys, I guess. Keys are not a compound tool. Keys are reductive because you start with a blank and you cut it down, sure. Um, but the key ring is definitely a compound tool. It's got all these things on it. See, I'm a true archaeologist. I have a bottle opener on my Most archaeologists wouldn't have that. I'm not even kidding. I, I don't know if there's statistical, so, uh, sociological evidence to back it up. But uh, among anthropologists and among academics, archaeologists are generally uh, heavy drinkers, some to the point of mm, not good. Um, OK, um, just mm, part of the. It's part of the archaeological culture. Um, the first stone tools, when we move on to stone tools, which are reductive technology in the beginning, right? We start out with a larger piece of stone and we break off what's missing. And I was going to do a demonstration for you, but unfortunately all my, my uh, stone tool equipment uh, and tools and things are in my, uh, in my storage unit that I can't access, along with the color scheme um, for identifying soil colors. So at the end of April, once I have access to these things, I hopefully will have a big show and tell day. Anyway, uh, stone tools have been around for at least three and a half million years. 
when I started learning about archaeology, uh, it was 2.5 million years ago, and that still remains the oldest stone tool itself that we know of. The actual oldest stone tool is 2.5 million years ago, but remember I mentioned, I think, when I was talking about diet, that the earliest evidence we have of stone tools are cut marks on animal bones from 3.5 million years ago. Um, fun, fun note, uh, I, taught, I first taught this class at uh, St. Louis Community College, and uh, it was actually that class wasn't under my when I was teaching it, but 10 years earlier, the guy who made the discovery of the 3.5 million year old tool had actually started studying anthropology at a community college because his father wanted him to be an engineer. And he said, what's the opposite of engineering so I can piss off my father? And he figured anthropology. So he took anthropology, he got his PhD in it, and actually found the earliest evidence of stone tools that we know of right now. Uh, won't be forever. I'm sure there will, we'll find earlier evidence eventually, but fun story because it's funny how far spite will take you. Um, we do have to realize that a lot of times we overemphasize stone tools in archaeology because they're well-preserved. It's a collection bias, right? We are biased towards looking at a lot of stone tools because they survive when, when we talk later about organics. Most of the tools were probably organic, and they don't survive. So we have to keep that in mind. Um, and there is a gendered component to this because a lot of times, and there's been study, kind of meta-studies of archaeology itself, that uh, male archaeologists are overrepresented in stone tool studies and female archaeologists are overrepresented in pottery studies, which is a gender division that may, um, may account for or may be related to the idea that a lot of times uh, stone tools were thought to be the male domain and the pottery, the female domain in the past, in most societies, not all of them, and not this isn't a hard and fast rule, but there's been a lot of discussion about the, the gender roles within archaeology itself, and stone tools and pottery are part and parcel of that. Okay, um, so one of the ways that we analyze stone tools, and I think an easy way for us to uh, organize our thoughts about this, is what's called the chaîne à I don't speak French, so I'm sorry if I'm butchering the accents. The chaîne à is the chain of operations. Basically, an operational sequence or the steps needed to make and use uh, um, stone tools. This kind of, we look at the life cycle or the biography of a stone tool, right? And the very basic uh, model of this is starting out with acquisition. Uh, going through manufacture and use and discard. Obviously, this is a one-way street, um, and it's not quite so cut and dried. Certainly a lot of bouncing around, but we will um, look at that as we go. So the first, the first item in the life of a stone tool is procurement or acquisition. And this is usually um, found at uh, mines or other locations where a nappable stone is found. Not every stone can be made into a stone tool. If you're making a chipped stone tool, then you want something that has a crystalline structure. Uh, crystalline structure basically means kind of uh, glass-like. 
right? When you break glass, it has these really uh, amazing fracture patterns and things like that. Whereas if you uh, tried to break a piece of sandstone, it would break more like wood. It's going to crumble and have rough edges and not really break on these nice planes. Crystalline structure stones like flint, chert, and obsidian, which is a volcanic, um, it's basically volcanic sand that's been melted into glass. So it's, it's basically just glass. It's super sharp. Um, flint and chert are metamorphic rocks, uh, if I remember correctly. Someone here in the earth sciences remember? Is it metamorphic rocks? Do you remember flint and I think so? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're uh, metamorphic. Anyway, uh, they have this nice, uh, what's called in geology, cleavage, uh, which has nothing to do with the usual use of that term in our everyday lives. But uh, the angles at which the stone breaks is called, it's, um, it's called cleavage. And those that have really nice crystalline structures tend to have very uh, uniform cleavage. They break, they cleave very nicely. Um, and so these are only located in certain areas. The, um, Obsidian is often found in volcanic or formerly volcanic zones. Flint and chert are often found in pockets where they have been metamorphosed out of, um, out of parent materials. And so when you find a location that has a lot of nappable stone, this uh, early mine, which is an open pit mine for nappable stone, uh, might result. <laughs> There are some areas with mine shafts up to 16 feet deep just to get good stone tool material, right? So, and there are actual mines that people would follow veins uh, of the, um, the nappable stone. Uh, one quarry even had a preserved uh, sledgehammer, shovel, torch, hammer, wedges, and a ladder. So they were like really serious about going after their good quality stone. Um, then, of course, you have to transport it. Now, obviously, if you're making a stone tool, you can just get a cobble that's not very much bigger than a potato, and you can carry that in your pocket. But then there are monoliths. Monolith, monolith, single stone. So uh, these are large stones. Think Stonehenge. Think the Olmec, um, the Olmec heads that I showed you before. Here's that Simpsons slide. Um, and people have come up with all kinds of different schemes for moving these large stones, like rolling them over logs, um, different lever systems. Uh, here in The Simpsons, this guy was delivered with a box. Uh, but this is not actually how they were moved. This is the National Geographic reconstruction of how these heads would have been moved. It would have taken quite a lot of uh, human power and uh, person hours to move these giant blocks. I think it'd be amazing to find one of those things when the raft failed and it fell into the water and they couldn't take it out. Um, so, uh, yeah, just another um, factor we need to think about is the transportation. Uh, actually, fun story. Do I talk about this where I should talk about? So, um, let me pull up a picture of Easter Island. Easter Island, you're probably all seen before. Uh, whether or not you know the term. 
So on Easter Island, they have these large stone heads. And one summer, there was, and they have these cool, like, hats and things. So one summer, archaeologists went there um, with the, a couple different ideas of how to move these stones uh, because they were made at a quarry that was kilometers away from where they stood them up on the beach. And they had all kinds of fancy ideas. One of them made, like, a sledge out of wood, and then the stone head would lay on it, and they'd pull it. Um, another had like this really crazy like A-frame and they would you know tie a rope on it and they'd go up here and like that and they'd get a whole bunch of guys to pull and it would across the island. They had all these crazy ideas. And then once they got the thing to the stand, they all had a fancy lever contraption, lots of ropes with pulleys, all these different ideas of these gadgets of how they lifted these stones up. And the whole summer they had employed these guys, these local guys, and uh, at the end of the summer, the local guys were like, oh, these are really neat. Do you want us to just show you how they did it? <laughs> the archaeologists were like, oh, yes, please. Uh, so the way they moved it was way less impressive than any of these fancy moves. They, they just laid them on down on their backs. They tied a rope around them, and they just got 120 guys together, and they just pulled them just right across the island. <laughs> like, just enough people. They didn't have any labor-saving devices, they just had a ton of people. And then once they got there, the way they stood them up, it took like four guys and two kids to stand them up. Because if it's laying down like this, um, they would use a lever, right? And they would lever down, it would move this up just a tiny bit, and they would put rocks under it. And then they would move the lever up a little bit, and they'd push down again, and it would move up just a little bit, and they'd put more rocks down. And over time, they built up these giant piles of rocks, and this thing kept moving up. Bigger, bigger piles of rocks, more and more rocks. And eventually, it would get to the point where it was about to stand up. They would use guide ropes. They pushed it over the edge and guided it into place. It was just a couple of people. So very simple tools, very simple, um, very simple um, procedure. Uh, didn't need a complicated answer, but the archaeologists were keen to invent one. So, uh, oh, us and our fancy pants ideas. Okay, um, production. So, it's a fair question to ask, how do you know if it's a real tool? Or how do you know if it's just a piece of stone? And this is probably the number one question that people will ask on their first excavation if they're dealing with a Stone Age society. Is this a stone or is this a, or is this a tool? So any reason to think this is a tool or not a tool? Any reason to say why or why not? Yeah. Uh-huh. Wear and tear from use. That would be a dead giveaway. Uh-huh. Anyone else? How would you would you say this is a stone or a stone or a tool? Or why or why not? Anyone know? Yeah. It kind of comes in with the way where they capture it. Yeah. Um, they've done studies uh, in places where rocks are falling around uh, waterfalls or other geographically interesting locations where rocks are falling. And it's very rare for flakes to be taken out in a sequence like this. Um, so each one of these kind of divots represents a flake taken off. 
And it does occur naturally, and that might be how people got the idea. Uh, when a rock hits another, it can shatter, and if it's the right type of rock, it can make a flake, and that flake is really sharp. That might be where people got the idea to use stone tools. Um, but they're not going to very often fall on the same face in a way that's going to make a contiguous cutting edge, whereas that's absolutely what we have here. Even though it's a pretty crude stone tool and a very early one, it's certainly uh, not a naturally occurring uh, shape. So the main process by which we get um, stone tools is uh, flint napping, which is the removal of flakes from a core. And if you were ever young enough and foolish enough to have shot a BB at a plate glass window or seen one, maybe that had been recently shot by a plate glass window, you'll notice that when the BB hit the glass, which is a crystalline structure, the space where it hit creates a cone. And that cone goes out, it's called a cone of percussion. And so it breaks out a piece of glass that looks just like this. If your window ever gets shot by a BB, look for that. See if, it, see if yours, and now if the BB sh crashes through, it kind of breaks that. But if the BB hits and bounces off, It'll detach this cone. That's exactly what we're doing in flint napping. Instead of hitting a plate glass window with a BB, we're hitting what starts out as a piece of glass with a glancing blow. And it breaks it in very much the same way that a BB breaks a piece of glass. And it shoots out this pressure wave, and it cracks off this part of the glass, or in this, case, in this case, the stone tool. And then you turn it over, and you hit this way, and it does a similar crack. right? And you work all the way around the edge of it, and eventually you have a stone tool. But that's the basic process. It's just forcing these cracks in the right location. It takes a lot of practice. Um, there's a ton of YouTube videos. Um, and hopefully, by at the end, closer to the end of the semester, I'll take some time and, and bring in my stuff and make some flakes and things for you. Uh, they can be very sharp. Uh, obsidian, when it breaks, it's so thin. How thin is it? So thin that the end is single molecules that are evaporating into the atmosphere. It's really thin uh, and extremely sharp. So sharp that when you cut yourself, you don't feel it because it cuts the nerves clean off. Uh, people use obsidian scalpels for eye surgery because they're so sharp. They're sharper than surgical steel. Hooray! Um, I've had a piece of flint embedded in my eye before. That sucked from doing this. So I caught it coming up and it stuck in my eye. Oh, swelled shut. That was awesome. Um, okay, so I'm going to run through some of the most important schools of stone tools. I'm not going to ask you to recount all the dates. You can look those up if you ever need to write about them. Perhaps there will be a, if there's a question on the exam on stone tools, it'll be one, it'll be the, the book, open book question, so you can look up the dates. Because again, not interested in factoids, but rather the patterns. And the pattern that we're looking at is increasingly complex tools. So Oldowan tools, the earliest stone tools from 2.5 to 1.5 million years ago. These are stones with about four or more flakes removed. It makes a sharp edge. And not only the actual remaining stone tool like we have here, but the flakes that come off. They're kind of like razor blades. 
or uh, pocket knives, I guess is a better analogy. And if you ever think about like, if you go camping or if you're out and about, having a pocket knife um, is pretty useful if you're having to do a lot of things with your hands. And so having those flakes would be a really useful tool to have on you. Um, one of the reasons that we're able to get by without claws or really sharp teeth is because we invented uh, external teeth and claws that we were able to use. This is what stone tools are. Why did you just jump in here? Okay. Um, oh, right, because of the cartoon. So what's this? I asked for a hammer. A hammer, this is a crescent wrench. Maybe not a hammer. Damn these stone tools. Uh, Gary Larson, the writer of Farside, uh, studied anthropology. Um, so he has a lot of anthropology jokes. Uh, the wheel is not an important first stone tool. I just want to point this out, That's um, why this is here. Um, the wheel wasn't invented until like uh, 5,000 years ago or something like that. It's not a... So we're talking 2.5 million years ago. Stone tools have been around a long time. The next are the Acheulean tools. The Acheulean tools from 1.5 to uh, 0 0.1 million years ago or 100,000 years ago. The really easy way to recognize these, the old one is usually just like a rock with a couple flakes taken off. The Acheulean hand axe is a really beautiful and difficult tool to make. It's almost always in this teardrop shape, and it's pretty thick, and it has a sharp edge all the way around. Now, there's healthy debate about why this type of tool was made. Because there's no real, like, super duper obvious reason as to why. Like, why, why would you make a teardrop shaped thing? We don't know. Were they putting them on a half like it's an axe handle, right? So here's your stone tool, and then you put the, the axe on it, right? Like the, the Blackhawks sort of thing. Um, uh, perhaps. But we don't see a lot of the stone tools with wear marks, like you're mentioning earlier, with the wear marks here to show that it was hafted. It wears and grinds down on the stone, so maybe they weren't hafted like that. Some people think they were throwing them like frisbees to hit um, small game or other game or other people. And <laughs> so one of my professors in grad school, we were doing experimental archaeology where we would actually go out, we'd make these things, and then we'd put targets out on a field and we'd huck them <laughs> To see if we could hit it, because why? Like, why not? Um, he was a pitcher in high school, so he was, or in college, so he was really, he could really nail stuff with these things. I don't know. Um, another argument is this was just the shape that was really conducive to making a lot of flakes, and so you'd carry this around in your pocket. You need to cut something up. You take it out. You take off a flake. You use the flake, and this is just like the the storage thing for your flakes. Um, other people have said, well, they are um, so uniform and so really nicely formed, really uniform, really um, complicated and difficult to make that it takes a lot of prowess to make these things. Maybe it was a way of showing off. You know, in the Paleolithic or the Old Stone Age, uh, you might not have had a lot of ways to advertise your how your skills, right? You don't own a fancy car, you don't wear fancy clothes, you don't live in a fancy house, but uh, at the time you can make a fancy tool and that will impress the ladies. I'm serious, that's, that's one of the arguments. Uh, there's a couple more. So we're not really sure, uh, but they were certainly use, um, 
widespread. This 1.5 to um, 0 .01, uh, 0 0.1 million years ago, this is when human beings are leaving Africa. So this stone tool, all the one tools are only found in Africa. This stone tool, the Acheulean hand axe, is found throughout Asia, through, uh, up to a certain point, uh, throughout the Middle East, and all the way down through Africa. And became, everywhere there were people, there were Acheulean hand axes, except for where they found bamboo, which took uh, the part of a lot of stone tools because bamboo is so useful. Then we move into the Mysterian. The Mysterian tools from 300 to 30,000 years ago. Um, these are Neanderthal tools. So where we find these type of tools, we find Neanderthals. Interesting, they are um, an unusual way to make stone tools. So if we go back to the Acheulean. So imagine I have an Acheulean hand axe. And if I want to make a Mousterian point out of it, basically a Mousterian point is, is a form like this, and then they hit the back, and they take a flake out of it that's the shape of an arrowhead. And so the back of it is, has all these flake scars from where they took it off, and then the underside is really smooth because it itself is a flake. And I'll go back so you can see it. So this, for example, would have been built on a much larger stone tool, and they knocked the back of it, and this arrowhead came off. Pretty neat, uh, unusual, um, and connected with the... Uh, the Neanderthals at the time. Um, the Gravitian tools from 28 to 24, these made, um, they made really small microblades. They took the flakes and actually made them into different things, like uh, little arrowheads and things like that. So it was a blade focused. Um, before this, a lot of people were focused on the actual tool itself, uh, that they would make the tool. This, they would make the blade and then modify the blade. It's a really efficient use of raw materials. If you have a stone this big, you can make one Acheulean hand axe and a whole bunch of flakes, or you can make tons of blades. And blades are basically, they, they look kind of similar to razor blades. They're blanks that come off, they have parallel sides. Um, in the New World, um, Clovis points are a really important type of tool. And notice they're much longer, narrower, and if it was turned to the side thinner than the Acheulean hand axe. And obviously they're much later. These are for hunting large game like mastodons or mammoths. Note, it's kind of hard to see. I apologize for that. It's kind of blurry. There's one big flake taken out of here, kind of like a Mysterian tool flake taken out. That's so you can put the haft of the... Of the uh, I'm going to blow it up here, make it bigger than life size. So here's your, here's your uh, Clovis point, and they took a flake out like this. And then into that flake, they were able to put those, the uh, point to help hold it um, and give it some lateral support so that it wouldn't snap like that one did. Also, uh, people have argued that there's that taking out this flake that makes a Clovis point a Clovis point was so difficult to do. And I've tried to do it, and this is usually when you break your point is doing this, that um, it was thought perhaps that by taking that flake out, if the flake survived, it was, or excuse me, if the point survived, it was a lucky point. And therefore, uh, it would survive in the hunting better than others. So it might have been luck. Others have argued, because like, apparently archaeologists are fixated on impressing girls. Um, male archaeologists, I suppose, or others, are fixated on impressing girls. They thought, ah, 
those are, uh, stone uh, tool makers that could do that were just the most impressive guys of, of, the, um, of the band. I mention it because it is a theory that's been put forward. I'm not pu putting it out there as a real. I, I, I think there's some uh, projection, some psychological projection going on in some of these things. This is uh, Bord, and I think Francois Bord. He was the father of the rebirth of the study of stone tools because the last person the last person in North America who grew up making stone tools to actually use was a guy named Ishii, and he was hired by, I think, the National Park Service, or at least the uh, California Park Service, to like give um, demonstrations in the early 1900s. He died, um, but he was a Native American, uh, and he made stone tools. And uh, but uh, So Western archaeologists, uh, European archaeologists usually, uh, or European descendant had to learn how to do it from scratch. And so this is Francois Bord. He's French, and he's kind of uh, the father of the rebirth of actually making them yourself to study how they were made. Um, I thought we were going to get to it. We haven't gotten into it today, but just because I have them, I'm going to pass them around. Um, these are cheapy replicas of early stone tablets. They weren't very big. Uh, pass them around. They're not super strong, so please don't drop them. Uh, you can have a look. I was going to talk about pottery later today, but I didn't get to it. So I'll just pass them around so I don't have to bring them twice and risk breaking them. Um, so by making them ourselves, we have a better insight into how they were actually made. Uh, we figured out that most people in the past were right-handed. Even millions of years ago, we can tell by the pattern of breakage that uh, most people were holding it with their right or left hand and hitting it with their right, suggesting right-handedness even millions of years ago. Uh, this is my buddy Grant. He's the one who threw uh, the Acheulean hand axes, and he's a, a pretty proficient um, stone tool maker. I will bring in some of his stone tools uh, later in the semester when I get access to them. One aspect of um, experimental archaeology is also breaking these things, because that's how we found them in the archaeological record. It's broken, and so we want to figure out what forces were at play when they were broken. Um, this is a point test where we would break points by stabbing them. Uh, they were on a pendulum. We'd pull it back and drop it. It would go into the target. This is actually to test how, uh, how strong fire-hardened wooden spears were. Surprisingly strong and a lot easier to make than stone tools. One way that we also understand the manufacturing process is through what's called refitting. And refitting is basically like a really frustrating three-dimensional puzzle. And I, I kid you not, there were archaeological dissertations where people go to a campsite where you know a band of folks sat around a campfire and made stone tools one night and left a scatter of a thousand flakes. And they took the tools with them. And so along comes us as archaeologists. We go through, we excavate the site, we screen everything out, we get all the stone tools, or all the stone flakes. Thanks. And then what happens? Well, we have basically the everything but the stone tool. So if you can refit them and put them back together the way they flaked off, and nothing but uh, a void where that stone tool was is in the middle, you fill that up with plaster, you take them off, you can see the stone tool they made. People have done that. 
where they sit and refit all of these things. And this tells us about the manufacturing process because flakes have to come off in a certain order, right? Because you can't take off a flake underneath this flake until this one's off, right? So you have to, um, so you're able to look at the thought process of people, make, why they decide to take this flake off, and it, it's, it's pretty fascinating and minute and takes the right personality to do that. Uh, like I said, there are monoliths, and people have done experiments um, suggesting how to move them. Um, some of these stones, they've even done, uh, again, it takes the right patient personality who will sit. Um, some people will recreate these stones. Um, a lot of these stones were made by what's called pecking, which basically means if this is a stone surface and I want to make it curved or something, I'll sit there with a rock and boom, 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 and bounce that rock off of this for like days and you brush off the dust and you do it again, dun, 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 dun. brush it off. That's how, um, we should have a picture of these Inca, that's how they made these Inca walls um, that are super famous. Um, so these walls, um, these Inca walls were made with no masonry, or with no, um, uh, what's the word, not masonry, um, mortar, thank you, no mortar between them. Um, and what they did was, uh, you can see these are handholds, and they would carve out you know, the rough shape of this, and then they would set it down on top of this, they would get it as close as they could, they'd set it down on top with a layer of dust. They'd lift it off and move it, and wherever the dust was compressed, they knew that that part of the rock was too high, so it was compressing the dust there, but not here where it didn't touch. So they would brush it off and pound that part down until it was a little softer. Then when they put dust down again, they put it on and pulled it off. They'd look for areas of compression where there were points of contact rather than the whole thing being smoothly together. And that's how they fitted these together. And one really neat thing about the way they did this was, because it doesn't have those even courses, when there's an earthquake, they kind of hold together because they're interlocked a little bit, so they don't shake apart, unlike you know brick and mortar that might crack uh, with an earthquake. So pretty amazing uh, stonework, even if above and beyond you know flint napping. There's a lot of it's a lot of time that people had to put into these things. Really amazing when you think about the scale um, that these folks were working under. Um, yeah, so raising monoliths, again, hugely controversial. I told you the anecdote about uh, moving the things on Easter Island. Um, there are, beware of harebrained, overly complicated schemes. There's a show actually called This Old Pyramid, and they build an Egyptian pyramid uh, and test out all these different uh, methods, kind of like Mythbusters, but for the ancient world, which is totally a show I would host and run if I could. Um, if I could pitch a show to somebody in the network, it would be Ancient Mythbusters, and I would do this sort of stuff all the time. It'd be awesome. Anyway, that's the end of the day. Um, we'll pick up uh, talking about the use of stone tools, and then we'll get into pottery and finish up the organics, which go a lot quicker next time.
Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.